You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Well, today our guest is Richard Cummings. Uh, Richard was the director of security for almost 10 years uh, of Radio Free Europe, RFE, which now has a new name, which I'll let him describe. And he has just produced a book, brand new, called Cold War Radio, The Dangerous History of American Broadcasting in Europe, 1950 to 1989, obviously through the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Uh, during that period, uh, the station was bombed, there were terrorist threats, uh, and many, many attempts to penetrate RFEs, many, some successful, uh, by intelligence services, particularly the Soviet KGB and other services. But let us start, uh, Richard, if we could, for our listeners, could you briefly describe what is RFE? First of all, um, most people in the United States might be aware of Radio Free Europe, which is RFE. They're not aware of Radio Liberty, which is RL um, in our terminology. RFE, Radio Free Europe, began in 1949, 1950, broadcasting to Eastern Europe. Radio Liberty began broadcasting in 1953 to the Soviet Union, and by the time 1990, excuse me, 1976, when the two radio stations were publicly acknowledged as being private corporations, they decided to combine RFE and RL into a hybrid corporation called RFE slash RL. In reality, RFE and RL were covert operations of the CIA from 1950 until 1967 when both were disclosed in a Ramparts magazine article. And that time, uh, under the Nixon administration, Johnson administration, then Nixon administration, they had to decide what to do with both Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. There was a long discussion, and they combined them again as then a private corporation with government funding to keep it going. In reality, as I can, uh, to repeat, uh, they were covert operations for about 17, 18 years. And my role was director of security through the 1980s, actually until 1995, when the Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, again RFERL, moved to Prague. I then went to Prague as a security consultant, 
uh, until 1998 and then left for another job at that point. And I want to get to some of these uh, uh, highlights of, of the history of, of, and I'll just say RFE for short, but the, the reason for the covert funding by CIA uh, was really a policy decision by the government uh, to provide a, a, a fig leaf, if you will. Uh, certainly uh, uh, the Soviet Union and others were, were well aware that it was, that it was funded by CIA, uh, most likely. It was, it was really an administrative cover as much as anything else. Exactly. I think uh, you go back to the Truman administration, George Kennan, Frank Wisner, Alan Dulles, and many others um, decided that they had to do something to broadcast or give information to Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union which would not be directly attributable to the United States government. The Voice of America at that time was broadcasting to these countries. However, the Voice of America was an official voice of the United States government. The people under Kennan and Wisner and so forth, they decided they needed an alternative to that in order to uh, create an image of a private corporation that could say anything they wanted on the air without then having it attributed officially to the United States government. So we go back to the Truman administration through the Eisenhower administration uh, creating this fiction, but I call it a benign fiction or a benign fraud, and uh, the, again to allow the corporation and the CIA to put on what some people might call propaganda. Um, I think over the years it turned out to be not propaganda, but officially straight news and commentary on the news. They would take information out of Eastern Europe, out of the Soviet Union, and then send it back in with a commentary. So the idea, again, is to create this image of a private corporation, to repeat, not to have it attributed to official U.S. government policy. One of the things you've, you've emphasized as we've been chatting here uh, is the extent to which uh, the, the RFE became a target for hostile intelligence services, particularly the KGB, uh, and I think you mentioned the Romanian. Why was that? Well, there were many reasons for that, and it went over decades, actually, not just over a period of a few years. The very first um, attempt to bomb the radio took place, I believe, in 1952-53 by the Czechs. They were a little incensed with the balloon program, which we probably don't have time to get into, but RFE was sending in balloons and leaflets across the Iron Curtain, and the Czechs were a little upset with these balloons falling and leaflets all over the place, and they then sent somebody out to bomb the radio in Munich, and he was arrested by American military since it was a, an American occupation zone at that point. So that was the very first attempt to uh, either to stop the balloons, stop the broadcasting, and then they moved into an infiltration of the radio to use the radios as a basis for the exile of immigrant groups in the West. They would then have these people working for RFE and RL make contact with the various immigrant groups, whether it's the Russian um, nationalist group called NTS or the OUN, which is Ukrainian nationalist group. Those are the two main targets of the KGB at that time. However, every intelligence service in Eastern Europe had penetrated, or success, either successfully or some in some cases unsuccessfully, RFE and RL. They would use it again not to influence programming because they were told, stay in the background, stay low-keyed, do not put your neck out, do not become uh, to the attention of the CIA. Stay as low-keyed as you possibly can so you can use the radios to 
again, either infiltrate or make contact with the exile groups or even the American military. That was also prime target. And the other thing was to find out who within Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty were CIA officers. That was a very important uh, mission. So the, the staff of RFE was largely, was largely made up of emigres, people with the languages of the countries into which this, you were broadcasting. That's, that's exactly true. Um, when I was director of security, we had a smaller operation of about 1,200 people from a total of maybe 2,700 people at one time. And out of that 1,200 people, 50 people were what we would call native-born Americans. Everybody else was either German or from the East European or Soviet uh, nationalities. Right from the beginning, the idea was to have the Radio for Europe and Radio Liberty broadcast in the original language to those people behind the Iron Curtain and not to have the American influence in the actual broadcasting. The CIA had an advisory role more than actually producing these programs. They had councils set up, nationality councils, they had editors and directors who would then write these programs in their own language, and the CIA would just provide, and State Department, provide overall advisory roles for these uh, programs. And I think uh, dur both during the Cold War and after, uh, we had an enormous amount of feedback about the impact of RFE within those populations. That's, that's actually true. In, in um, my book, which you did mention, I mention or uh, write about some of the commentaries from the presidents of various countries and the democratic Eastern European countries saying without Radio for Europe or Radio Liberty, they would not have survived and probably there would not have been a collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. Not that Radio for Europe and Radio Liberty were the only factors, but they were prime factors, no question about that. The only country that really physically tried to do anything in, as a result of programming, I would say, would be Romania. And that was the bombing that took place of the, the headquarters building in Munich, led by the infamous Carlos the Jackal terrorist, with uh, terrorists uh, from Germany, from Spain. And uh, this was a direct uh, order from Ceausescu to silence the radios. The KGB was more of infiltration. They did not actually try to sabotage physically the radio operation. One of the, uh, it's interesting to find Carlos the Jackal mixed up with, with the intelligence service against RFE. That sort of uh, doesn't break the pattern, but it sort of adds Well, another, that's an interesting yeah. story. If I could, we don't have much time, but uh, Carlos was actually hired to kill Pachepa, Ion Pachepa the highest-ranking Romanian intelligence officer. Yes. And they went to Prague, meaning they, two Romanian intelligence officers, went to Prague, met Carlos, and said, Carlos, can you kill Pachepa? And we'll give you $10,000. And, and just in a word, Pachepa was? Oh, excuse me. Pachepa was the highest-ranking Romanian intelligence officer who defected to the West, who is believe, who I believe still lives in the Washington area somewhere, and has written about these uh, problems within Radio Free Europe as well. But Carlos turned down the offer. $10,000 to him was nothing. However, they did offer other materials, uh, rocket launches, hand grenades, false passports, uh, safe haven, and he accepted that. And there is a story, and it has not been documented, that he did receive $1 million to bomb the radios. And it was bombed? Did, did he carry very, that out? We had a very serious bombing. It took place on Saturday night, uh, February 21st, 1981. Uh, we had five people injured in the building and damage to the building in excess of $2 million. We were not knocked off the air, as the wish was by Ceausescu. 
The only time we stopped broadcasting is when we had to evacuate the building by the police order and that the reels of tape stopped at that moment. So we lost about five minutes of actual broadcasting. Did you, I know this is hard to quantify, but can you give us uh, in some terms the extent to which you as director of security felt that the station had been penetrated by well, uh, hostile intelligence services? We knew, in, in my time period of what I've read before in the files, we knew that we had been penetrated because Radio Moscow, Radio Bucharest, Radio Prague, whatever, would use internal information. So that was the, the first clue, or the first hint, or first evidence that we had. Who was providing the information was much more difficult to prove. They were very open in saying that they had penetrated the, the services. This was more of an intimidation or harassment factor of the immigration staff, basically saying, we're watching you. And so they would take information out of documentation, telephone, book, whatever it might be, and then rebroadcast. Again, Radio Moscow would broadcast to Romanian, Romanian language, and quote from documentation. Uh, this was the, the very first evidence and the, and the prime evidence that we had of penetration. One of the, uh, one of the more notorious uh, cases of, of a, um, an RFE-linked uh, assassination, if you will, was of Yorgi Markov in 1979 in London. I wonder if you could give us some of the background on that. Georgi Markov, in fact, was murdered. Uh, all the evidence proves to that. I've spoken with Dr. Uh, Christopher Green, Kit Green, who was a consultant to the CIA um, and who actually then uh, examined the pellet that was used and discovered ricin as the poison. Markov was a defector who was working not only for Radio Free Europe but for BBC. And for Radio Free Europe, he was attacking the dictatorship of Zhivkov, the Bulgarian president and Communist Party leader. For BBC, he was broadcasting only on what was happening culturally in the West. His mother, Georgi Markov's mother, was told, if he doesn't stop broadcasting, we're going to kill him. Meaning, again, we, Radio Free Europe. Georgi Markov's brother also was receiving warnings, told Georgi to stop or lessen his attacks against Zhivkov. The information that we have discovered over the years that Zhivkov then said he wanted Markov killed. The order then was given to the director, excuse me, the um, interior minister, who then got in touch with the KGB. They discovered and uh, ricin would be the best poison to use, and they used a device which has been described as an umbrella. This is the famous umbrella murder that took place in, in 1978, I believe it was. 1978, 19, yes. 1978 right. in, yes. And on uh, Waterloo Bridge in London. It's been documented by various people, and uh, Markov again uh, was. There were three attempts to kill Markov. One in Munich by putting a poison in his drink at a party, which failed. Another one was on the island of Sardinia, where they wanted to put poison on the walls, or but he was with his child and, and wife, so they decided that it was too much of a risk. And the third alternative, which is the most successful one, obviously, is the pellet used uh, to penetrate Markov's leg. The ricin then went into his system, and within three days he was dead. And my recollection is that the the assassin was directed to kill someone else and turned himself in. Or the assassin I is no. The assassin. The assassin has never been identified. The person that led the pre-attack, his name is Francesco Galino, and he had the nickname Piccadilly, or codename Piccadilly. He has not turned himself in. In fact, people are still looking for him. What happened is that uh, Markov, prior to the Markov attack in Paris, there was the first attack 
with the use of rice, and, and that was against another defector from um, Bulgaria called Kostov. Kostov was also an intelligence agent of the Bulgarian uh, secret police, and, and he was working in Paris for Radio Free Europe. They decided to use the attack first on, Marco, on Kostov. It failed. The, pennant, the, the pellet penetrated only the um, uppermost uh, layers of his skin. After Markov was killed, Kostov went to French intelligence people and said, I have a very strange story, and he talked about how he was then attacked in the subway. French intelligence got in touch with Scotland Yard since the murder had taken place in Scotland Yard. They got in touch with Radio Free Europe. The director of security then went to Paris. Scotland Yard people came. They did a small operation on Kostov's back, found the pellet, and in the pellet was still the poison. That pellet then was taken by Scotland Yard to the top secret uh, laboratories in London, where after experimentation, they did in fact discover it was ricin. So if Markov had been killed, and if Kostov theoretically would have been the first victim, however, the pellet again has been proven, and it's on display at Scotland Yard right now. You can see it. It's a totally minute. I can't remember the exact dimensions of it, but it's incredibly small. Um, the only, and uh, General Kalugan, the KGB uh, general, um, has written about this case. He and I spoke about this case. He was involved in the planning operation of, of the murder of Markov. So all the evidence is there. It's a prima facie case of murder. However, the documentation was destroyed. 17,000 pages, more or less, in Bulgaria were destroyed after the collapse of communism by a general named Todorov. Um, however, most people believe that these files are duplicated and probably sit in Moscow today, but Moscow is not releasing any files today. Yeah. So, yes, it was a definite case of murder, a political murder, and for broadcasting it ready for Europe. Well, as, as I think you know, General Kalugin uh, today is on our board and has been an advisor on the museum and the artifacts in the museum, one of which is uh, a KGB-made uh, umbrella, the same as the one that was used against uh, used on Markov in 1978 at Waterloo Bridge, which you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Were there other uh, similar attacks on RFE staff? Yes, there were similar. The, the very first murder took place in 1954 in Munich, and it was of an Azeri, Azerbaijan, one of the nationalities of the Soviet Union. Uh, the the director of, Azer, of the Azeri service was murdered. And uh, a long investigation took place, and a long story, which I go into many details in the book. But he was the very first victim, and it definitely was KGB that uh, killed uh, this man in 1954. There were other murder attempts. There were kidnapping attempts and successful kidnapping in Vienna. Uh, there were kidnapping attempts and murder attempts in Munich uh, by the Romanians. Um, there are stories. I have to use the word stories here because the documentation has not come out to the public yet. But three Romanian service directors died under mysterious circumstances. Pacepa, in his book, goes into the radiation was used to kill these people. However, I examined that building through the American military. We had all kinds of equipment. We never found any traces of radiation in the headquarters building in Munich. So we do not believe that the murdered people, excuse me, the directors, were in fact victims within the building. If this happened, it was outside the building. Um, there were definitely uh, a murder attempt by Emil Georgescu by Carlos, apparently, also in 1981. He was stabbed 27 times on the way to work. The only reason he didn't die is because the knife was too small. And these were two French criminals that were sent over from Paris, attacked him as he was going into the garage to drive to work, 27 times in his chest. 
he died eventually of cancer um, two or three years after that. There were some other attempts as well, but uh, we don't have time to get into all those details. Anybody wants the information, it's in my book, and I highly recommend, recommend that. Okay. Again, the book is, and I'm going to mention it, Cold War Radio by Richard Cummings. And it's uh, Cold War Radio, The Dangerous History of American Broadcasting in Europe, 1950 to 1989. You were there as Director of Security in 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down. Yes. Do you remember being in RFE when that happened, and do you remember what the role of the station was? Well, the 1989, when the wall came down, um, that was in November 1989, and that did not impact Radio Free Europe per se at that moment because we did not broadcast to Eastern Germany. We broadcast to the other countries of Eastern Europe. What became interesting afterwards is the collapse of communism in Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria. Then we became very impacted by what happened. People would then come to the radio from these countries, thank us for all of those years of support. The dissidents in those countries would come to us physically and also visit the radio and thank us for support. I was allowed information or to obtain information from the archives and files of the intelligence service in those countries as thank you for what happened and how we contributed to the collapse of communism. Today's world, we wouldn't get that information. But in 1990, 1991, as thank you again, we were given information uh, as to who penetrated the radio, some of the plots of the bombing, and so forth and so on. We also then saw the impact we had within the, re the, the listenership, where it went from 40, 50, 60, 70 percent, whatever it was at any particular time. For example, in the Solidarity Movement in Poland, 1980, 1981, 1982, we probably reached about 60 to 70 percent of the Polish adult population. In Romania, that to me was the most important one because when Ceausescu, in December 1989, just before Christmas, when he was overthrown, we were assisting by broadcasting his location the people who were looking for Ceausescu, the, the, the uh, dissidents and the military people who were looking for him. And um, it was Yeltsin also back in 1991, if we can move a little, the collapse yes. of communism in Russia. Yes. Yeltsin was using Radio Liberty to send his, Boris Yeltsin was for the first president in democratic Russia. He was using information he was listening to on Radio Liberty um, and using Radio Liberty to get his information to the people. So he was we're almost a conduit of government information at that time. Gorbachev, who was then Communist Party leader and imprisoned to use that phrase, um, in 1991, also thanked Radio Liberty afterwards because we were one of the, his prime sources of information what was happening in the Soviet Union in 1991 at the, at the coup d'etat attempt. Uh, in the 10th year anniversary of 1989, uh, Gorbachev again praised Radio Liberty as being one of his prime sources of information all of those years. So well, that showed us the impact that we, we had on government level as a on the yes. personal level. Yes, when you say uh, that, that, that Gorbachev uh, used uh, RFE um, as well as the Solidarity Movement, do you mean that you had good sources in those countries, got information which you then broadcast. In other words, you were broadcasting into those countries information which was current. Definitely on solidarity. Definitely on solidarity. And uh, Valesa, who the Polish president, if uh, eventually, if you recall, when he was granted the Nobel Prize, he was not allowed to travel to uh, Helsinki, uh, excuse me, um, Oslo, to receive the Nobel Prize. So we actually broadcast live the Nobel Prize ceremonies back into Poland and he, with our pictures of him listening to 
the broadcast since he was not allowed to leave. Now, as I recall, RFE was headquartered for many, many years in Munich. Is that still the case? or Munich was the headquarters from the very beginning. Um, they moved from Munich to Prague in 1995 and continued actually today to broadcast and using Internet and also having television. They've gone beyond just radio broadcasting. They broadcast primarily now to Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan. They also, I believe, still broadcast to Serbia or in the Serbian language and in the Russian language. But all the East European languages, they no longer broadcast in those languages. There's no need to. They're all democratic countries and free travel, free flow of information and so forth. So they stopped broadcasting to Eastern Europe, and I don't recall the year now. Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, having been in, involved with the broadcasting in RFE for so many years, I, one of the phenomena that we're all looking at right now is the extent to which Twitter has been used uh, to send out uh, reports on what is going on in Iran during this standoff following the election. Um, is that the sort of thing that RFE would benefit from? In other words, would they get a straddle of the Twitter traffic and try and determine the veracity of it and whether it was reliable enough to be used on air? There's no question about that. Um, the Twitter traffic, uh, you can, anybody today can go into the home pages of RFEL.org and you will read the information from Twitter and other sources, whether it's Iran, Afghanistan, whatever it might be. They are getting that information. People are communicating through the Internet. Again, I believe the Internet has become more important. However, there are areas where people don't have Internet and do have radio, so they continue broadcasting as best they can in shortwave uh, broadcasting to uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, whatever they might be, to the Central Asian languages. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes, Internet has become a major factor. Just a few years ago, actually, Radio for Europe was hit by a massive attack, probably directed out of Russia, against the broadcasting on Internet and knocked them off the air. They had a denial of service attack, and I don't remember the numbers, it's in my book as well, but they did have a, de a denial of service attack, uh, probably 2007, I have to guess on that date right now. So yes, today even, the regimes, if they're not happy with broadcasting, they do attempt to influence in any way they can the broadcasting. Twitter's a problem. You don't know the source. So you, they do have a, a again, I'm speaking from secondhand information since I'm no longer involved with the radios, but maintain an active communication with them. It's always you need two sources of information to broadcast a program. A single source would not be. If they did a Twitter review, they would have to say in the beginning, this is from Twitter, we cannot verify the source information, but this is what we're getting. All right, well, once again, I've been talking to Richard Cummings. His book, Cold War Radio, The Dangerous History of American Broadcasting in Europe, 1950 to 1989. Richard, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.